0: Good morning. Well, we're going to jump back into our series, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, as we continue to look at the subject of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. What we've seen so far is that these believers are being persecuted and suffering for their beliefs. And as the pain of the season grows longer, the author knows that his friends are in danger of doubting the love and goodness of God and becoming self-sufficient that he knows that as they start to move forward, that they can start to become self-reliant, no longer trusting the promises and characters of God. See, what we've seen is that suffering is a battle for the heart, and that the way we suffer is just as important as what we suffer. Because in the moment of suffering, we tend to allow our hearts to be filled with doubt and despair, that we can become so consumed by who we are that we fail to remember who God is, that we start to become so focused upon our pain and misery that we fail to remember and that we question his mercy and kindness, that we start to think that our eternal external circumstances define us and we forget that we are made in his image that we start to run from God instead of run to God, that we start to find comfort in the arms of another, than running to God and finding comfort in the loving arms of the Father. And what the author is trying to remind his readers is that even though that their minds are filled with doubt, that even though they are overwhelmed by all of these fears, that they are not alone. You see, for thousands of years, that God has been with men and women of old who have faced insurmountable challenges, tough difficulties, some of the, the hardest of trials that you can face. But they were able to get through all of those things because they put faith in God's sustaining grace. So let's start reading in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to start reading in verse 32. It says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of the lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by the resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about it in in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these things though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since god had promised something better for us that apart from from us they should not be made perfect today as we look at persevering faith we're going to separate our ideas into 3 thoughts the first one is that faith is believing in god's sovereign grace Number two is faith is believing in God's sustaining grace. And then we'll finish up with faith is believing in God's transforming grace. So looking at God's sovereign grace is that we look at verse 32. And when we read verse 32, I mean, for those of us who have grown up in church, or if you have read the Old Testament, then you probably have seen that, that these names are not new to you. I mean, we have probably heard their stories over and over and over again to a point that we can visualize ourselves into the story. That some of us might even idolize these men and women because these are Bible legends. That these are heroes of the faith. And I don't know about you, but... I can start to kind of compare my personal story with these well-known stories and start to think that my story doesn't measure up, that, that I could never be like these men and women. We start to fill our minds with that voice, that voice that we have this kind of this private conversation with. I mean, you know the voice, the voice that says that we don't have enough courage or strength to be like these men and women, that, that we are not a natural leader, that no one will follow us, that our past will determine our future, that we aren't special enough, that we aren't smart enough, that we aren't talented or gifted enough to do what these men did. And in some reality, it's, that voice is true, that we aren't gifted enough, that we aren't strong enough to, to do what these men did without the supernatural work of God, but what I want us to see today is that God does not use us because of us, but because of what he sees in him, what he sees in, uh, through us uh, in him. See, before God chose these men, these men were just kind of like these ragamuffin group of people. Like, they lived this mundane and kind of mediocre life. I mean, these men were never going to be picked first in a schoolyard pickup game. They were never going to be the valedictorian of their class or the most popular kid in school. They weren't going to be the ones that were going to be uh, most likely to succeed. I mean, as we see them kind of describing themselves in their own stories, we see that Gideon describes himself as the poorest clan in Manasseh, the weakest in his family. Barak was young and really too afraid to do anything by himself. We see that Samson had a lot of talent, but the sad story of his life goes is that he did more with his death than he did with his life. Jephthah was born to a different mother and rejected by his family. David was the youngest of his family and despised by his brothers. And Samuel was a child who was dismissed. See, and if you continue to read these stories, that what you're going to see is that they made mistake after mistake, error after error, that their faith was far from perfect, that their faith was often mingled with fear and oppressed with unbelief, but despite all of that, God chose to use them. It's because he wanted to show that despite what they thought of themselves, despite of who they were and, and, and who they thought that they were, that despite all of their external conditions, is that nothing can hinder the grace of God. See, I love the story of of Gideon. And we find it in Judges chapter 6. And I just want to take a little bit of a look into his story. In Judges chapter 6, verse 11, we see, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress, to hide it from the Midianites You see, at this time, the, the Midianites were kind of the bullies on the block, and they were coming into Israel and stealing all of their crops and their cattle. Now, because Israel was this agricultural society, that you can imagine that, as after the harvest, the Midianites would come in and steal their crops, steal their cattle, that it was wreaking havoc upon the local economy. Not only that, it was just decaying their sense of security in Israel. But in the midst of all of this, the story kind of focuses in, it kind of zeroes in on one man, a man named Gideon, who is hiding uh, in his winepress. He's threshing and beating his wheat in the winepress to try to salvage as much as he can before the Midianites get there. But then we see in verse 12, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I mean, let's get this right. So God appears to Gideon in a wine press, a man who is hiding, and he calls him a mighty man of valor. I mean, it doesn't make sense. I mean, if I'm sitting where God is sitting and I'm looking for a man to lead my, my army against this powerful army, I'm not looking for a man who is hiding in a wine press. I'm looking for a man who has at least enough courage to thresh and beat his wheat out in the open. I'm probably looking for a man who has some type of military background, who has specializes in military tactics that can take a a group of of, uh, soldiers, a group of farmers really, and create them to be soldiers to go against this powerful army. Maybe I'm looking for an elder who has kind of at least position to kind of raise up a group of people to fight against this army. That if it can't be about tactics, maybe it can be about numbers and that we can at least match the amount of people in the Midianite army. But instead... In God's sovereign grace, he chooses Gideon. He chooses Gideon. I mean, the world would see Gideon as a coward, but God sees him as mighty. See, God doesn't look at Gideon and see him for all of his weaknesses. He looks at Gideon and sees his strength coming through Gideon. He sees him for who he can be with God. You see... Many of us need to kind of cut out the noise of the world that surrounds us. You know, like Gideon, the world would probably seize us for, our, for, for being a coward, for our failures, for our weaknesses, and we need to shut out the noise. We need to stop looking in the mirror and seeing us for all of our failures and our mistakes and our limitations and our weaknesses. But we need to try to look at ourselves as God sees us because God doesn't see us as a coward But he says that you are mighty. He doesn't see you as plain and ordinary, but he says that you are beautiful. He doesn't see you as an outcast unable to fit in, but he says that you are loved. And God says that in my sovereign grace, I choose you because I see you not for your weaknesses. But I see you for my strength. I see my strength in you and know that there is something great that I want to do with you. But Gideon wants to say time out to this conversation. He wants to hit pause. You see, God is calling him to something great, but God, or Gideon wants to kind of question God. Put him on trial. He says, God, I have a few questions. Before we go any farther in this conversation, I need to know some things. And I think that we can relate to Gideon in some of these questions because it's a lot of these questions that start with the word, why? Why? So let's read verse 13. It says, and Gideon says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, is not God good? Are you still good, God? But now the Lord has forsaken us. He's not near. He's not here. He's not present with me. And he says, and he's given us into the hand of Midian. Oh, we can relate to these questions, can't we? That in our season of suffering, that we can wonder why? Why me? Why is this happening to me? God, why are you so silent in my life? God, why can't I see your presence right now? Why can't I feel you? God, are you still good? Where are your promises, oh Lord? Why is this going on for so long? See, it's in these moments that we allow our hearts to be shaped by our despair and that we forget about the promises that God gave to us. But God turns to Gideon and and he starts to talk to him in verse 14 and he says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. See, Gideon wants God to focus on his shortcomings. Gideon wants to give God all the excuses and all the reasons why that he's not the right person for this job. But God says, despite your excuses, despite all of your questions, here's one reason why I want you to go. And here's one reason why that I want you to have faith. And he says in verse 16, I will be with you. He said, Gideon, I know that you're looking for a strategy, but I am your strategy. I know, Gideon, that you're looking for a powerful army, but I am your powerful army. Gideon, I know that you're looking for answers, and I am your answers. You see, God wants Gideon to know that in his hopelessness, that there is hope. And in his helplessness, there is help in God. The Apostle Paul says it this way, that in our weaknesses, that we are made strong. See, sometimes we want to focus on our limitations. We want to focus on our failures and all the things that we can't do. But God says, with me, all things are possible. See, God wants to use Gideon despite him being a coward. Despite Gideon doubting who he is and who his, uh, his, what his abilities are. God wants to use Gideon, despite that Gideon doubts the promise and power of God. God, in his sovereign grace, says, I want to use you, Gideon. And God, in his sovereign grace, is telling us, I want to use you. See, in our faith, he wants us to come to the end of our self-sufficiency. He wants to have us come to the end of our excuses so that our heart can be filled with his presence, with his power, with his goodness, See, when we fail to acknowledge our weaknesses, we fail to acknowledge the self-sufficiency of God's grace. And that's our first takeaway, that faith is acknowledging the sufficiency of God's grace. See, God is enough. No matter what we're going through, God is enough. His grace is sufficient and he chooses you See, Gideon finally comes to the end of himself and decides to lead God's army into battle. See, God didn't care who Gideon is. He didn't didn't pick Gideon despite who he was. He picked Gideon because of who he was. And God wants to use you, not despite of who you are, but because of who you are. See, God knows who you are and He looks past those weaknesses and he sees his strength in us. Well, let's take a look at faith is believing in God's sustaining grace. Rereading verse 33, we see that who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy." Now, after reading these verses, it's easy for us to get so caught up in the gruesome acts of this list, of all the things that people suffered. But the author is not writing this list to to make us afraid, to to scare us off, to make us think of, is there another way? He's actually writing this list to encourage us, to let us know that for thousands of years, that from the beginning of time, that God has helped his people endure very tough trials difficult circumstances, and he's done it all through his sustaining grace. See, we can look at our hardships and we can start to question the presence of God. Or in our hardship, we can lean on him through in all things. You see, sustaining grace helps us to exercise our faith See, many of us try to go through our life trying to avoid any type of difficulty or hardship uh, that comes our way. Or at the very least, we try to put as much distance between those moments of, of suffering. You know, for most of us, our very definition of success for our life would be to avoid a list that's like this between 32 and 38. I mean, we work hard to avoid confrontation, that we tend to play it safe, that, that we want to blend in and to not stand out. But when we live like this, we really don't need God, do we? And we really don't need to stretch our faith. But God allows suffering so that we will realize that we need to come to the end of ourself, that we need to come to the end of our self-sufficiency and into dependency upon God. That faith is relying upon God in all situations. You see, this list shows some very hard realities for these believers. But the one thing that we don't read about in this list is that the author never says how these people, how his friends can avoid suffering that as we've taken the last couple of weeks and we've looked through Hebrews chapter 11, that never is there a time where the author says, this is how I want you to avoid these outcomes or, or here's how he can, I can make it easier for you. As a matter of fact, I mean, the author, as he's writing Hebrews chapter 11, I mean, he basically assumes that suffering is going to happen to all believers, that all believers are going to face hardship that all believers at some point is going to face suffering in their life. See, the choice is not really whether or not you will suffer. The choice is the way that you will suffer. See, we can run from God or we can run to God. And in our suffering, that we have an opportunity to exemplify, we have an opportunity to conform to the image of Christ, to, to grow more into his likeness, that we have an opportunity to exercise our faith. So in Hebrews chapter, or excuse me, in Hebrews 11, verse 33, the author writes two words at the beginning, and he says, through faith. See, for those of us that, that work out, um, You know, when we work out, we are developing muscles that that hopefully over time that we're seeing that our muscles are growing uh, stronger, that we're able to do things that maybe that we haven't been able to do before. I mean, maybe we're running faster or running uh, farther. Maybe that we can jump higher or jump a little bit longer. Maybe if we're lifting weights that we're seeing that our muscles are developing and, and that we're able to lift more weights over time. And faith Is a spiritual muscle that God wants us to develop. He wants us to exercise, that He wants us to grow stronger and and not to remain weak. So He sometimes allows suffering in our lives so that we will grow in our dependency upon Him. Well, let's look at sustaining grace, shows that we are not alone if we had time to look at all of the stories in this this chapter, that we would see the evidence of God's presence. We would see the evidence of God's supernatural work in the lives of all of these people and throughout their story. That no matter how big their trials were, no matter how great their circumstances that they were dealing with, is that what we see is that God is near. In the story of David and First and Second Samuel see that that God allowed David to have victory over armies that were greater and more powerful that had better technology than he did, but God gave him victory. We see that when Daniel was sentenced to death in the in the den of the lions, is that God sent an angel to shut the mouth of the lions so that Daniel could survive. But we see that God was there. That what we see in the story in Daniel chapter three with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they, as they stood before the most powerful king in the world, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they refused to bow down to the idols, uh, his idol, that he sends them to die in the fiery furnace. But then when he looks at the fiery furnace, he doesn't see three people, he sees four. And he says that someone is like the sons of God because of his brightness we see that God was there in the fiery furnace. And I love how Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, wherever your story takes you, you will never arrive there first because God is already there in in his sovereign power. See, as, as this list shows those, that faith doesn't mean that we are always going to get the victory. See, this list is kind of divided up into two parts. And, and what we see at the beginning of those two parts is that, is that sometimes that God did allow the victories. But in the second part of this list is that, that sometimes believers suffered a martyr's death. But so faith doesn't believe that or see that we'll always see victory. It doesn't mean that we will always escape trials. And it doesn't mean that we will always be present with God's promise, but what it does mean that in all of our afflictions is that God will be with us. See, God doesn't promise that, that that we will never walk through the valley, but what he does promise is that he will walk through the valley with us. You know, I love how Romans chapter eight, verse 38 says it this way, for I am sure that neither death nor life Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sustaining grace helps us to have an eternal perspective. You know, in this list that we read between verses 38, 33, and 38, is is that we see all of these hardships. But in each one of those hardships is that each man and woman had a chance to avoid suffering. And they could do that by denying their faith. They could do it by rejecting God. But the author writes this this testimony about their faith. And he says that they refused to accept release. You see, all of these believers, when faced with one of the most most difficult and, and hardest of choices, is that they chose God. See, they said that they would rather suffer for a few years than suffer for all of eternity. That they believed that the promises of God were of greater value than the promises of this world. See, the world doesn't know how sometimes how to treat people that they don't understand. The world can be an unkind and unjust place for people that don't agree with them that they feel like people that don't fit in, that kind of goes against the grain a little bit. And these believers in this list saw themselves kind of living in exile, living in a different place. That as they were living in the world, they, they decided that they were gonna believe in the coming promise of the Messiah, that they were gonna believe in the coming resurrection. And so they knew that what God had for them was something greater, that something greater was in store. You see, they lived their lives with an eternal perspective. They valued their souls over their bodies. They valued the words of God over the praise of man. They valued the inheritance of heaven over the riches of this world. This world is going to offer us a lot of things. It's going to try to promise us identity, wealth, influence, But what we've seen is that all of this is temporary. That at some point that we are going to retire from our job and we're going to kind of lose our position, our our title. That at some point that there could be kind of just this economic disaster where we may lose our wealth. That at some point that we are going to die and we may lose our influence. But what God is promising us is something greater, something more. See, what he's saying is say, I am promising you a greater identity. I'm promising you a greater inheritance. I'm promising you greater influence. And these believers believed they looked past the temporary and looked into the eternal because they knew that God can offer more. So here's our, faith, our takeaway. Faith is looking beyond the temporary and finding eternal satisfaction with God. It's looking beyond the temporary to find eternal satisfaction with God. In our final point, we see that faith is believing in God's transforming grace. In verse 39, it says, And all these, though commanded, uh, commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The men and women of old believed in a coming Messiah. They lived their life differently. They lived in exile. And because of their faith, God used suffering in their life to transform them, to transform their life and to accomplish his will. You see, we see that Gideon, who was a coward hiding in the winepress, was called to lead an army. Well over 120,000 Midianites. We see that Barak and Samson and Jephthah, who were just living these mediocre lives where they weren't really known, but now they became leaders and judges of Israel. We see that David went from a despised younger brother to the revered king of Israel. And we see that Samuel was a dismissed child and became a prophet who led, the Israel, who led the Israelites from the time of the judges into the monarchy. But see, God is using the suffering of Jesus to transform our lives as well. I mean, if you remember in Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, we see that, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angel's, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And God used the suffering of Jesus to transform us as well. See, if you remember in Hebrews chapter 2, verse nine, the author says it this way, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, none of us like to suffer. None of us would choose to go through hard, hardship and trials, and none of us would choose pain. None of us especially would choose the way that Jesus suffered. I mean, Jesus left all the comforts of heaven to make himself lower than the angels to come to earth for us. Jesus chose to be mocked. He chose to be beaten. He chose to die a death of crucifixion for us. He did all of this so that we might be transformed into his glory. See, he transformed us from a, a people who were broken to people who have hope. He transformed us with people who struggled with identity to, to a children who carries his name. He transforms us from people who struggle with insecurity to now with people who know that we have value. He transforms us from people who are dead and now are made alive. But the transformation doesn't stop there because he says that he's continuing to work on us and through us as he transforms us. In Philippians 1, verse 6, it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion into the day of Jesus Christ. See, he is continuing to work on us. He's continuing to work through our limitations, work through our weaknesses, work through all of our failures because he knows that that he's gonna put his strength in us, that he's gonna use us for his glory, that he's going to see his power work in and through our lives as he's making us more like himself. If we have a moment to talk to just older and wiser believers that you'll, as you hear their story, that what you're gonna hear is, is, that is probably through times of suffering is when they grew in their relationship with God. That it was probably in that moment is that they became more aware of God's power and presence. That it was when that they let go of the things that they were holding to and they went to cling on to, to God and his presence that it's in the times of suffering is that when they stopped looking down upon their life and they started looking up towards God in all things. It's usually in times of suffering that God is transforming us to become more like himself. And God is using suffering to also transform his church. See, in 1949, the Communist Party took over China And when that started to happen is that they started to remove all the missionaries that were in place. And any missionary that refused were either imprisoned or killed. And so they started to just make all the missionaries exit the country. And at this time, it was believed that there was less than probably one million Christians that were uh, practicing in the country of China that was well over a population of 500 million in 1955, a leader, Mao, uh, came into, uh, into power and started to create this, what he called this cultural revolution in which he decided that he was going to persecute the church. That over the next 30 years, that he was going to burn down churches, that he was going to destroy Bibles, that he was going to mock pastors as, they, as he paraded them through the streets, that he was going to take Christian families and separate them and force them into re-education camps that for 30 years that the, that the church was going through this relentless attack. But it was in this moment that what no one could see at the time was that through God's sustaining and transforming power, that he was at work, that he was doing something. That before all this happened, that there was less than 1 million Christians that were, happening, that were, that were practicing in this country. But then... About 40 or 45 years later that the World Christian Encyclopedia comes out and shows that there are now over 90 million Christians that are believing and practicing and worshiping God in in the country of China. See, God uses suffering to transform his church. And the takeaway is this, is that faith allows us to recognize God's supremacy in all things. Faith allows us to see that God is still on his throne, that we may not always see all the things that that he's doing. We may not see all the things that he is working on, but he is still in charge of all things. We don't know what all the things that God is doing in this COVID-19 season. I mean, we don't know all the purpose that he may have for this, that how he's allowing the season to, to change and transform, but, but maybe he's using this season to transform his church as well. That maybe it's during this time that, that he may be asking us that, that we change what we're holding on to. That maybe we are willing to kind of let go of some of our traditions that maybe that we're willing to let go of some of our programs, that maybe our definition of church needs to change a little bit so that we can come closer to the heart, his heartbeat, to the things that, that he values most. See, the church is not a building. And so we shouldn't be at home waiting for the, the building of the church to open so that we can go to church. The church is a gathering of believers who have believed in God's resurrecting and transforming power and that we have the chance to be the church at our house, in our jobs, in our coworkers and in our neighborhood. We may never have another situation like this. We may never have an opportunity that as we were sitting at home, that we could have a witness in the way that we do at this time. That maybe that God wants us to redeem this time. To be the church outside of the walls of the building so that we can uh, evangelize, that we can share our testimony with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers, and with our neighbors. You see, the circumstances around us can be our greatest excuse or the very reason for our faith to shine. You know, and our faith shines the brightest when it's surrounded by uh, darkness. Our faith shines the brightest when it's surrounded by darkness. That The darker the night, the more evidence the the stars twinkle in the sky. So when we look at our suffering, we should be praying not, how does God remove this from us? How can we get get out of this uh, faster? How can we get done with this? as fast as possible, but we should be praying, God, what are you doing in my life? How are you using this season to transform me? How are you using this season to make my faith shine for your glory? We should be using this season to rely on God's sustaining grace, and that's persevering faith. Let's pray. God, help us to come to the end of ourselves and to rely on you in all things. God, I just pray that in this moment that, that we search your heart so that we will be the people, the church that you want us to be. Lord, we don't know what all the things that you're doing, but we know that you are still at work, that you are still on your throne and that Lord, we want to join you in your mission. So God, I pray for our neighbors. I pray for our coworkers. I I pray for our families that who we have a chance to minister to, that we have a chance to witness to. Lord, I pray that even now that we desire to be a light that shines for you. So God, thank you for your sustaining grace. In Jesus' name, amen.